Hello and welcome to today's podcast from the Video Journal of Neurology. We are an open access video journal sharing the latest news in neurology across all major disciplines. Our regular podcast will bring you exclusive insights from renowned experts on hot topics in their fields. In this episode, we'll be talking to experts about current advances in Parkinson's disease treatments in terms of both disease-modifying treatments and symptom alleviation. We began by thinking anew about how you would do CNS-related research, so central nervous system research for diseases. The field is plagued by this common problem. You go into a clinic, you see certain observations in thousands of patients, you say, oh, well, if I could suppress that observation, I should get a drug that works, and it's been 100% failure in this field for the last 50 years, in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS and Huntington's, et cetera. And they are all characterized by a protein, which we call a misfolded protein, in the Parkinson case, alpha-synuclein. And so, and in Alzheimer's, et cetera, it's often a protein called tau or beta amyloid. What we've seen is that these aggregates or misfolded proteins that, observe, that are observed in the disease emerge, they're characteristic of the disease, but they don't actually cause the disease itself. And that observation that we made that led us down the road of identifying C. able as the what we think is the most important target for disease modification came about from the fact that we could reproduce the entire disease process pretty faithfully in mice. We're using mice because we have to study the disease process at a rate of disease progression that mimics what happens in humans. So in humans, that's one third of a lifespan or 25 years. In mice, one third of a lifespan is one year. So we can do experiments, they're very hard to do, but we can do experiments for one year in hundreds of mice at the same time. What we cannot do is do similar experiments like this in monkeys for 10 years before they show a disease. So that's why we chose mice to do this work, we and a whole lot of collaborators at many universities worldwide. And so what came about was the observation that we could introduce synuclein aggregates through genetic or by just injecting protein aggregates themselves into the parts of the brain or the parts of other areas in the body, such as the GI tract, and then just wait and see that the disease develops. Once we figured out how to do this, it develops at the same rate relative to lifespan that humans do, about a third of a lifespan. When we knocked out ABLE conditionally in the brain, all of a sudden, all the neurodegeneration disappeared. So when we saw that, we knew that we had come upon a important regulatory factor in the disease process. Those studies led over a period of time to identification of all the downstream effectors that give rise to all of the manifestations of the disease that we know. At the top of that cascade was ABLE, this enzyme. ABLE's role in biology is to act as kind of a sentinel for damage or defects. And so what ABLE does in response for the presence of these misfolded proteins is that it sees them when they enter the neurons. And when it sees them, it acts to kill those neurons. That's its job. So we wanted to block the ability of ABLE to recognize the presence of these misfolded proteins and kill the neurons. Surprisingly, what we found is that when we add an ABLE inhibitor like 1489, which we did in animals that had significant disease for a long period of time, something equivalent to a 10-year disease point in a human, we found that we didn't just block ABLE and suppress what happened in those neurons, we actually reversed what had already occurred. So while we've called it neurodegeneration, you don't actually lose the neurons. They're dysfunctional, but they're not gone. When we blocked ABLE, we saw that we could protect neurons from degradation. 
And when we protect neurons from degradation, we restored motor function, which we could measure how mice walk across steps or how mice descend poles or how mice grab a, a metal grate. And we can measure how fat hard it can pull on a grate because we can use a, a gauge to, to measure that. And we saw recovery of that function. And then we went and looked inside the tissue to see what else occurred. Surprisingly, able inhibition didn't just restore function and protect neurons from degrading, it also cleared the aggregates from the animal. And that's been the kind of holy grail. We only see those aggregates in the disease state. And now we had a mechanism to not only restore function and protect neurons from being lost, but we could clear the underlying pathology. So it's not really a cure, we can't say that, but it heads down a path where cure might be possible for some of these diseases. So uh, in our case, it's been you know, really eye-opening. So we moved our whole company in this direction about four years ago. Uh, fortunately, we had a lot of support from the National Institutes of Health, from the Fox Foundation, et cetera. Went public a year ago. Then the FDA has been very supportive. We went from no data in the clinic all the way into phase two in 15, 16 months. And now we're in phase two trial. So very, very quickly. Shabal Musa from Georgetown University Medical Center will now outline the potential of niloxtenib to treat movement disorders such as PD. So movement disorders, they seem to be a slightly different game than Alzheimer's disease. Uh, movement disorders, um, uh, particularly, I would say, Parkinson's disease, uh, you know, that is a very strong standard of care right now. Levodopa is a very strong uh, very strong uh, medication that exists that can significantly and immediately uh, uh, alter symptoms in in uh, in in, uh, in Parkinson's disease. So what we've seen with nilotinib um, and also with other uh, TKIs like pozitinib in dementia with liver bodies, which is really a memory and a movement disorder, uh, we've seen that you know uh, nilotinib again. Um, uh, uh, inhibits DDR1. Um, when inhibits DDR1, induces autophagy. Uh, it does actually have this significant effect on microRNAs, uh, particularly in Parkinson's patients. Something that we didn't know before. We didn't know, like that, that if, if you like, angiogenesis or uh, or blood brain blood brain barrier defects are so prominent in Parkinson's disease as they are as we like we know. Let's say in in in, in Alzheimer's disease, where you know probably. Uh, uh, two out of three patients with APOE uh, mutations or APOE that mutations, APOE uh, uh, alleles, you know, two alleles of APOE will probably have uh, more inflammation and in, uh, in, in blood brain barrier. So what we've seen in, in Parkinson's disease, we've seen the effect on, on, the, uh, on, on these biomarkers and notably and very, very uh, significantly in several uh, uh, diseases right now, including Huntington's disease, Parkinson's, low-body dementia, and Alzheimer's disease, these TKIs somehow have an effect on the level of dopamine, on the level of endogenous dopamine. Uh, and that, that probably mainly due to the effect of these uh, uh, TKIs on the breakdown of dopamine. So that would make more dopamine available, particularly in diseases like Parkinson's disease. If you have uh, loss of dopamine, uh, then uh, that would probably compensate for that loss of dopamine due to uh, a reduced breakdown on ma and making more dopamine available to the brain. But because of the standard of care, because of levodopa, because of the immediate powerful effects on the symptoms, you know, um, the effect of, dopa of, of nilotinib in Parkinson's disease is not seen immediately, particularly that uh, over the, uh, until now, 
We've only studied nilatinib in patients who are uh, mid-moderate uh, moderate, uh, uh, Parkinson's disease patients or severe end-stage Parkinson's disease patients. We have not studied nilatinib in early disease patients. So we've seen that the, the drug sufficiently enters the brain, inhibits DDR, and, uh, you know, importantly, uh, you know, uh, you're only seeing the effects on motor uh, symptoms over a longer period of time, maybe over a, a one year. Because uh, in, in the first year of the, of, of the trials that we did, uh, we've seen that uh, the effect is minimal. Uh, and uh, there's actually a lot of placebo effects over one year at least in Parkinson's disease. But as we went out to 27 months, we've seen that, you know, the nilotinib um, uh, completely reversed uh, the effects uh, or, or motor, if you like, the, the decline of motor symptoms uh, in, in Parkinson's patients. So that, that, that said, is, uh, we have uh, two options here for nilotinib. Either to go to an earlier stage of nilotinib, um, of uh, an, an earlier stage of Parkinson's disease, where nilotinib is administered uh, in uh, levodopa-naive patients, and we would look at the effects of uh, of nilotinib in these levodopa-naive patients over at least one year to see if the, the potential disease-modifying effect that we're seeing uh, with levodopa can delay or prevent, you know, if you like, uh, uh, the, um, um, uh, you know, the... Um, um, uh, taking, if you like, the uh, levodopa, levodopa therapies. Uh, alternatively, uh, if we are keen on uh, basically studying the dopamine, uh, studying nilotinib in patients who are already on dopamine replacement therapies like levodopa, then our clinical trial will have to be at least two years to see if there is any effect of the drug over two years. Uh, you know, on top of levodopa. So it's, it's exactly the same concept as we do in Alzheimer's disease. In Alzheimer's disease, we want to see if the drug has any additive effect on top of the standard of care and if it can basically counteract edema or ARIA, you know, in amyloid, uh, anti-amyloid therapies. In Parkinson's disease, we either have to start very early on before patients uh, are on levodopa, or if they are on levodopa, we have to study them over two 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 year period of time uh, to see if uh, nilotinib on top of levodopa can uh, halt or reverse um, uh, motor uh, motor effects. Uh, in both in both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, we've done phase two clinical trials, and phase two clinical trials have uh, have uh, if you like. Um, uh, led to uh, very, very highly encouraging uh, effects, particularly on biomarkers like alpha-synuclein dopamine, uh, microRNAs, uh, you know, amyloid PET, uh, CSF amyloid, volumetric MRI. This is all good, but none of these clinical trials have been adequately powered to show the clinical effects of the drug. There is, in Parkinson's disease, a strong indication that over a longer period of time, in patients who are taking levodopa, there is a complete halt of neurodegenerative, or, or if you like, of, uh, of uh, uh, movement disorders progression. Uh, in Alzheimer's disease, we still yet to see this, uh, but my guess is, uh, my guess is uh, considering the uh, multiple effects of the drug on, uh, on, on the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, we are likely to see uh, a clinical effect in, uh, in an adequately powered phase two trial. Next, Daniel Opson from Aarhus University will be explaining how the process of glycation could be a promising clinical target for the treatment of PD. 
glycation is uh, actually not an intended process, unlike, for example, bacterial amyloid formation. It's something that happens chemically because you have uh, reactive species in the cell that chemically go and uh, form bonds to, to proteins. And so they are not really designed to occur, but when they do occur, they tend to, uh, if they are able to modify uh, sort of inappropriate parts of the protein, they prevent the protein from interacting with its other uh, interaction partners. In the case of alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's disease, which we've looked a lot at, uh, introduction of a very hydrophilic sugar group, as is the case here, means that the protein uh, cannot really aggregate to form long fibrils, as it normally would. So it uh, inhibits fibrillation, and that might seem good, but it also means that the protein is more disposed to form smaller aggregates. Uh, we haven't actually shown this directly, but there is a, a high probability that the um, protein then forms small soluble species, which we call oligomers, which can be uh, cytotoxic. So glycation can be a bad thing uh, from that perspective. But our work uh, also indicated that if you have um, a, a small amount of, um, uh, of glycated uh, protein, that can actually very effectively inhibit the rest of the protein population from aggregating because they can bind to the growing ends of the fibril and prevent it from growing on. But if you glycate it too much, in other words, if you make your protein too sweet, uh, then that protein will simply not be able to recognize the, the fibril because it's become too different. So that that is why we say that there is a sweet spot for sugar uh, modification uh, in order to, uh, for the modified protein to really affect the, the process. Finally, we'll be hearing from Serge Shedborski from Columbia University Irvine Medical Center, who will be summarizing advancements in cell therapies for PD. Cell therapy um, in Parkinson's disease really can take, as we have heard at the meeting, uh, very different uh, directions. You can of course have strategies aimed at disease modifying, but you can also have uh, gene therapy or, or cell therapy for uh, improving the symptoms. And so in terms of the first one, uh, disease modifying, uh, there are two ways again that we can see. One is to repair with cell therapies to repair a defective network. Um, I think that that's of course very promising. Uh, of course, we all would like to achieve that. I think that I'm probably more on the corner of be still the judge uh, our, our needs to tell us if that it's altogether possible. Uh, neural pathways are very difficult, are very complex to emulate and to repair uh, in the brain. So it is possible, but I think it's probably to me I'm not too sure that that's really the directions uh, I'm the most excited about. I'm much more excited about using cell therapy, for example, to try to modify the environment. One thing that we have to remember is that a dying neuron, for example, in Parkinson's disease, it's not dying in isolation. The cell is surrounded by many other cells, i.e. glial cells, for example. Those glial cells are also sick or can be affected by the disease. And they create really a, what I will call a hostile environment. And so one of the things we can do is to try to um, pacify the environment to make those compromised neurons evolving in a more um, 
I would say, welcoming uh, environment to reduce the stress uh, on those compromised cells coming from the outside. And that, I think, it's probably, in my mind, naively, a more achievable goal with cell therapy. You can imagine to engineer cells, uh, to mimic glial cells, for example, and make them welcoming from those uh, compromised or sick neurons. On the symptomatic stage, then it's, it's obvious. If you're missing, for example, uh, levodopa, uh, the dopamine in the brain, you can have those cells producing what it's missing. And so symptomatic therapeutic uh, aspect, I think it's an achievable goal. I think that there have been already some uh, interesting and promising results along this line. So I think that that's probably a, a possible um, uh, goal to achieve. Of course, then you have to challenge that with some current strategies like DBS, for example, and wonder, you know, what, what is the benefit to have cell implanted in your nervous system when you can have instead perhaps electrodes or even new non-invasive uh, strategies? That's a discussion maybe for another day. Uh, there are pros and cons in, in everything, uh, but that's really, to me, would be a kind of the competition for the selection of cell therapy uh, in symptomatic arena. Those are all the updates we had for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, and if you found it useful, we would love if you could leave a review. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast app, including Spotify, Apple and Podbean. Finally, be sure to follow us on Twitter at VJ Neurology to join in the conversation and visit vjneurology.com for the latest updates in the field. Until next time.